It's literally a parade celebrating what is a game That's what it is. And, and so it is a festival of sin. But of course, that is the point, isn't it? It's a celebration of pride. And so pride is the sin behind other sins. Pride is able to exist unseen. You know, it's interesting, Niccolo Machiavelli, he wrote an entire book for princes, basically instructing them how to cultivate this sin, but keep it hidden. That was the whole, whole premise of the prince. So it's, it's hard for us then to identify pride except to see then what it produces. You know, a tree is known by its fruit, as Jesus said. So when we talk about pride, we're looking at sin at a deeper level. as sin behind the sin. Now, pride is that great chain that holds us back, holds us from the duties that we ought to perform, the desires we ought to possess, and even the devotion that we ought to present. Now, what's the opposite of pride? Well, you'll probably rightly say what? What's the opposite of pride? Humility. But another way of of thinking about pride is that pride is self-vindication. Pride is self-vindication. And so the opposite of pride in that sense is vindication by God. So you can have self-vindication or vindication by God. And so when you believe and you follow Jesus Christ, which I hope everyone here will do, then you're actually resting on Christ for your vindication, not leaning on yourself for your own vindication. Because I would be proud. Thomas Watson said, even where, he said, where there is godliness appearing, it, it apparently seems, and yet you, you can have men swollen with pride and ready to burst, he says that men, when they are proud, they won't confess it. And he says, the bastard of pride is born, but none are willing to father it. And so I think that's, that's the thing, is that this pride comes out and none of us, none of us wants to own it. Say, yeah, there's my pride. And so the fact is, in this day and age, even amongst Christians, among Christian men, I think it's pretty easy for me to say that we are too proud. Too proud. Now, this morning what I want to do is I want to look at seven areas, seven things in which we we are too proud. Things that we're too proud and it is resulting in these certain things. And then we're going to look at a few questions about a good kind of pride, just to, just to kind of balance out the, the focus. And then we're going to look at some practical ways to kill pride in your souls. And you've got the little outline there. So that's what we're going to do. I'm just going to go along here and we're going to jump around the Bible a little bit. But the first thing is being too proud to submit. Too proud to submit. 
You remember Stephen? Stephen, that martyr, first Christian martyr, he said of his persecutors, he says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. That's in Acts 7, 51. His persecutors were too proud to submit to God. You know, Paul said the same thing to his Jewish kinsmen. He said in Romans 10, 3, he said, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. You know, too proud to let God set the terms. It's, oh, no, I got to do it my way. I got to set it up my way. No, you know, too, too proud to let God's standard be, be my standard. Too proud to let God define what is right and righteous. Again, the pride parade is an illustration of that. It's a refusal to let God set the standard of what is righteous. That God would set the standard of what is love. And instead, what's the slogan? Oh, love is love. I'm going to define it any way I like. Do you know that, you know how men deceive themselves into looking at porn or hooking up with some woman who isn't their wife? It's actually because they're proud. It's the, they're proud. Because they always redefine what God demands. They self-justify. And they do this because they refuse to submit to God's law. And that's how it is. And if you're looking at porn, like that is what you're doing. You're saying, oh, well, I'm going to redefine this as being not quite as bad as it really is. But you're, then you're just saying, I'm going to refuse to submit to God. No wonder then our world shows evidence of both rebellion and this blindingly obvious pride. You know, for example, Romans 8, 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So when we actually think about all this, you know, if you're like me, we're all reading about, oh, well, how are we going to have this Christian influence in society and Christian nationalism, Christian whatever in, in, in society, Christians in politics. Just remember that, that the mind set on the flesh, it actually cannot submit to God's law. And that's how bad it is out there. That's how bad, how lost everybody is. And I think if you're like me, I don't really feel or recognize how lost the lost world really is. That it needs a miracle. It doesn't need merely, you know, a little bit of persuasion to kind of act like Christians, even though they're, they're still lost. No, they're, they're going to hell. And of course, Romans 1.18 through 32 is a great section, but in Romans 1.32, it says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That is the epitome of pride. Too proud to submit. Of course, then we have in our culture today then this strange thing where there is a parading of pride in celebration of supposed victimhood. 
But we can't concede to such claims. We have to see that if a man claims to be a woman, or a man claims that he can marry another man, that they are not humble people. They are proud. They're too proud to submit to God. Of course, then it's also the heroes and the celebrities and the billionaires of the world. I mean, it's amazing to see everybody cheering on Elon Musk. Oh, dad, he's going to free Twitter now that he's bought it. I wouldn't trust that guy as far as I could throw him. But Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel, remember what he said in Daniel 4.30? He says, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And you might not be Nebuchadnezzar, but you might look at your job, your house, your little empire, and think, wow, look at what I built. Go to the neighbor, see, see what I've got here. But yet, there's no submission to God, no acknowledgement of God's grace and mercy and provision. And while the words were still in Nebuchadnezzar's mouth, you know what happened. The words are still in his mouth, and God slapped the pride right out of him. And he made him like this crazy cow, hidden away, this disgusting weirdo. And uh, some of you young guys haven't been around long enough to see what God does to a man, a proud man, and just can turn him on a dime and humble him and make his life a ruin because God will suffer no competitors. So you're too proud to submit? What's the Johnny Cash answer? Tell him God's going to cut him down, right? Tell him God's going to cut him down. And that is a message for this generation. Peter said in 1 Peter 5, 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, I'm going to quote a bunch from the Puritan Thomas Watson. Puritans were in the 17th century in England, and the Puritans were the gigachads of biblical biblical spirituality. So if you're looking for somebody to follow, the Puritans are, are the ones. And if you haven't read the Puritans, get on it. Watson said, on speaking on 1 Peter 5, he said, Put humility on as an embroidered robe. It is better to lack anything rather than humility. It is better to lack gifts. That's like talents and abilities. It's better to lack gifts than humility. No, it is better to lack the comforts of the Spirit rather than lack humility. And then quoting Micah 6.8, What does the Lord require of you? but to walk humbly with your God. That's what he requires. You think, oh, there's all this stuff to do. Yeah, but there's one thing that is required, that you walk humbly with your God. And I'll tell you what, there's all kinds of crusaders these days, all kinds of, all kinds of conservative guys, conservative Christian guys. They want, you know, they want to fight the fight, 
and they can say lots of good things, but I've got to ask when I come up against these guys is, are you walking humbly with your God? Or is this just you not really submitting to God and kind of wanting to use godliness as a means of gain? So beware. If you won't submit to God and you give excuses and you think you're a wannabe libertarian, then you're just an arrogant, proud boy child. And we need you, all of us, we need you. We need you to be humble, to submit to God, and to submit to his order. Not being too proud to put on humility, to submit when called to submit. And if we're going to rebuild the ruins, then we need men who are not too proud to submit. It's huge. That's the first thing. Secondly, you can't be too proud to receive. Uh, and the second one is, is probably the one that, I, mean, I can say I have trouble with all these, but I've had a lot of trouble with this one over the years. And, it, and the Lord has had to kind of take me to the woodshed on it and, and teach me through difficult things just how proud I was and I was too proud to receive. Now, the prime example, I think, of, that illustrates this is actually Peter. Peter, who actually wrote 1 Peter 5. Do you remember what happened when Jesus washed Peter's feet? You can just flip back there. Just turn to John chapter 13. John 13 is not the passage most guys go to when they think about being macho as a, as a Christian man. Washing of feet. Just set the context here. John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. And just think, you got proud, arrogant Judas is mentioned, but he's not going to be the main feature here. Verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And you know what, you know what Peter's thinking? Dudes don't wash other dudes' feet. It seemed weird. Just like, whoa, whoa, man, what, what are you doing here? That's what I would think. But then you, you know, you guys are all smart guys. You might know the cultural context. Only slaves would wash the stinking sandal feet of men coming in off the street. So Peter might have received it if, if this guy doing this was lower than him. That the class distinctions then, they're, they're okay. He could do that. But what if someone better than Peter did something nice for him? And, and I'll just ask you, what do you like? What do you like when, when someone who is better than you, who is busier than you, who's stronger than you, who's smarter than you, 
and they decide to be generous to you, how do you respond? Well, chances are you have a hard time receiving it. Jesus answered, verse 7, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said, you shall never wash my feet. And this is Peter's pride on display. He can't handle receiving this service from Jesus. And Jesus says, if I did not wash you, you have no share with me. Of course, you know, Jesus doesn't mess around with Peter's pride. Peter has to receive the grace that Jesus gives. And then, of course, as the rest of it goes on, Peter, you know, he's going to go, go to the extremes. He's like, oh, well, if a little's good, a lot's a lot better. But the fundamental issue is this. If you receive something from someone, it makes it appear, in your mind, it makes it appear as if you are needy. If you're needy, then it means you're weak. That you're somehow incomplete. That you're insufficient. That you're not good enough. And that's why proud men refuse to receive any gift, any blessing, any grace, any help. They can't bear to receive it. They'll refuse it rather than admit that they are not completely autonomous and self-sufficient. You know, on the farm, I learned growing up, I learned a lot about resilience and resourcefulness, being able to take charge, do things. I tended to prefer things this time when I, I wanted to do them myself. I didn't want to admit that I needed help. And so I wouldn't receive it. I was like, no, I can, I'll do it. Even if I'll do it poorly, but I'd rather do it myself. It, one of the things, though, God then was going to then pluck that kind of pride out of me, or at least much of it, in 2013 when, when our house flooded. Because our house flooded, and our house, as some of the guys who were here came down and helped, our house was filled with this toxic sludge. And I was feeling a sort of a PTSD. And even though my instincts were kind of trained to say, well, oh, it's okay, I've got this, I can do that, I can do this, I, I couldn't. I didn't have it. I needed help. And I needed to humble myself and just receive Guys would say, oh, well, you know, this, this has to be done. And I would normally, I would say, oh, well, yeah, I can handle it. I'll get that. I'll get to that. And it was more like, okay, yeah, whatever you say. If it's got to be done, oh, oh, yeah, please do it. Go, go for it. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for doing that. Because I can't do it. I needed to humble myself and receive any and all the help that anyone was willing to offer and God forced me to stop being too proud to receive. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, For who makes, you to, who makes you to differ from another? And what have you that you did not receive? And this gets then to, to a different kind of proud man. Because the self-sufficient guy who refuses to receive any, anything... What he does then, he sits back and then he complains. Because he thinks he's self-sufficient. He, everybody knows he needs help. He refuses the help, but because he sits back, then he can bellyache about everyone and everything. 
Again, Watson sees this. He said, are not those who are never pleased with their condition proud? They speak harshly of God, charging his care and wisdom as if he had dealt badly with them. God himself cannot please a proud man. He is forever finding fault and flying in the face of heaven. See, it's a remarkable thing when you see this guy, the complaining man, right? I'm a complaining man. The complaining man is too proud to receive grace, to receive good things, to receive help. He wants to preserve his right to bellyache about everything. And when you try to help him, or if God blesses him, he refuses to acknowledge it. He refuses to admit that he would be helped by it. And you know how it is. You've gone and you've helped somebody. And they've hardly said thank you. And you're like, what's going on? What? what? You know, I'm just trying to help the guy out. Yeah, but he's, he's so proud that he's having a hard time accepting anything from you because it might imply that then he's incomplete. He's insufficient. He's not the master of his own destiny. God gives grace to the humble, and the humble actually receive it. Thank you for your grace, God. Yeah, yeah I need it. More honest self-assessment than so many guys, so many guys in this city, so many guys in this room. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, the sun rises on the just and the ju- unjust, rain falls on the just and the unjust. Mm, yeah, all right, yeah, I'm, look at what I built. I'm, I'm, I'm looking after me. And they won't even receive it. And yet they're just being overwhelmed with all kinds of undeserved favor. Too proud to receive. But next is too proud to learn. You know the saying, can't teach an old dog new tricks. I mean, there's another one. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And that's, that's kind of the thing. You're, you're too, too proud to learn. And, and I can be this way. Uh, whether it's an app on my phone or actually my whole phone, I'm too proud to learn. Uh, you know, the pronunciation of someone's name, too proud to learn it. Anything I don't want to do, I can just play dumb. But really, I'm just too proud to learn. And again, picking on Peter here, but Peter is the prime example. You remember when he got the vision of all the non-kosher food in Acts 10. So there's this vision. If you got to think, you got to think of the Jewish context if you're not familiar with it. You know, Peter's a Jew, so he eats kosher. You know, so there's there's no there's no bacon for breakfast, and 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 so he's he's very strict that way, eating kosher. And then he gets this vision of all this non-kosher stuff, including. A big fat pig. It's like bacon. Yes. No, but he's like, no, he's resistant to this. And a voice came to him, Acts 10, 13. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. All you hunting season guys are like, yeah. Verse 14, but Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. 
You see, Peter was so proud of his convictions that he wouldn't let himself be taught by God. And this is how so many religious people are. They're so proud, and yet they're completely unteachable. And so, many Muslims. You know, I've, I've talked, the pizza guy down the street, Muhammad, you know, just down in Bridgeland, many of us have shared the gospel with him. You know, but when you get into it, at a certain point, there's a wall there, and he's like, yeah, I ba he basically doesn't want to learn. He doesn't want you to kind of spell it out for him, explain it. He doesn't really want to learn. Roman Catholics, mainline Protestants, atheistic secularists are this way. You know it is. We're told we can own the libs with facts and logic. Well, actually, you can't. Because they're so proud that they refuse to learn. They, they, don't want, they don't want you to spell it. They don't want you to explain it to them. Of course, some of the most destructive people in our churches are guys who have read a book or two, and they think that their stubbornness is the gift of discernment. And they're destroying churches. And if you're one of them, stop doing it. Mark Dever said once in a conversation, that unless we're willing to have our views corrected and, and adjusted, then we really don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. Like, if you're unwilling to change that way, you don't believe in an inerrant Bible. So which is it? Is it an inerrant Scripture or an inerrant self? We can be too proud to be teachable, too proud to learn. And that's why... Peter says in 1 Peter 5 that the young men are to humble themselves and submit to their elders, to be teachable. And Jesus calls us to, be, to, to humble ourselves in Matthew 11. And he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly heart and you will find rest for your souls. A lot of us, yeah, we want rest for our souls from Jesus, but we're just so stubborn. We actually don't want to listen to him. We don't want to learn. We think we've got it all figured out. I'm going to pick on the Dutch guys here. There's a Dutch guy, Dutch farmer near where we live, and he said of his countrymen, so that's why I can say this joke, said of other Dutch guys, he said, wooden shoes, wooden head, wooden listen, and all the Dutch guys know this. It's not just a Dutch problem, though. It's a human one. Guy also said, if you ain't Dutch, you ain't much. But that's beside the point. For all you Dutch guys there, I threw you a bone. Too proud to learn. Is that where you're at right now? Oh, he's a pastor. They don't know nothing. I've read, I've read the books. They haven't read the books. They can't teach me anything. I'm going to teach them. Too proud to learn. Too proud to trust. Too proud to trust. Now, this should seem obvious. When we're proud, we don't trust anyone. We trust only ourselves. Maybe we think we don't want to be disappointed, so we're never going to let our trust rest on others. As I said to one guy talking about this, I said, when you live like this, 
It's as if you dig a moat around yourself and you build high walls that no one else can get into. And, and it's a proud little fortress that you can build for yourself. Or really, is it a cage? You remember Israel? Israel refused to trust God. After all that God had done for them, they, they refused to trust him. They were too proud for that. And so in 1 Samuel 8, they asked for a king. The proud people said, verse 19, There shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. They, they were too proud to trust in God. They wanted to trust in their own king, in their own strength, in themselves. Thomas Watson said, A proud man is the herald of his own good deeds. He blazes his own fame, and therein lies his vice, to paint his own virtue. And isn't that a description of our proud age? We don't trust in God, but we trust in our own virtue. And what do we call it? Virtue. Signaling. Right? And you can virtue signal on the left, and you can virtue signal on the right. And you look, look, at how, look at my bona fides. Look at my virtues. I'm more conservative than thou. That's the threat in this room. Out there, it's that, yeah, I'm more, I'm more left than thou. I'm more woke than thou. I'm trusting in my own virtue. Again, Watson said, those who look at themselves in the magnifying mirror of self-love appear in their own eyes better than they are. Romans 12, 3, Paul says, by contrast, he says, for the, by the grace given to me, Romans 12, 3, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So as you trust in God, you have then an accurate self-understanding of yourself. I've seen so many ministries maligned simply because proud people refused to trust their pastor. Now, you can immediately think, oh, I can think of exceptions to that. You know, and there is a danger of blind trust, absolutely. We've seen all these wrecks with pastors. But when I see Christians who are always suspicious about the motives of their pastors or the motives of Christian leaders or basically everybody's motives, if they're just always suspicious, then immediately I want to say, I want to start thinking about, okay, where's this pride hiding? Where is it? Because many people are simply too proud to trust. I see them when they walk in the church, and I know they won't be here very long because I know they're too suspicious to trust the ministry of the pastors here. They just, we, there's no way to satisfy them because they're too proud. Only if God humbles them will they be able to actually participate in the life of the church because you have to have trust under God, according to God's word, but you have to trust. Too proud to trust. Next one is too proud to try. Too proud to try. And this is, this, this is a category of pride that can remain hidden, I think. It's the man too proud to try. And you know how it is. You don't want to make an effort. 
Because if you do, it makes you look vulnerable. I, I've, I've seen guys who are extremely calculating so that they are never in a situation in which they can be embarrassed or in which they might be ashamed or in which they might be put in a negative light. So they don't even try. They don't even try. They won't, they won't poke fun at themselves. They won't, even, they won't do anything that's going to put them in a bad light. You remember Genesis 4, the account of Cain and Abel? You know, Abel's sacrifice was accepted and Cain's wasn't. And God said to Cain, he said, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must overrule it. So Cain had a choice. He could humble himself and try to do well. He just had to try. He could listen to God and make the effort to do things in God's way rather than his own. But of course, Cain was too proud. He didn't want to try. Why bother trying? So the easiest thing for him to do was to eliminate any, me any memory of his failure. And so he murders his brother. Just take him out. And nobody, nobody's going to be asking me about my sacrifice. I don't have to try anymore because you know, Abel's gone. So my wife and I were trying to do all this categorization, think of these age groups. And I, I still am Generation X. You know, you're like, oh, what's that? This must mean I'm old. Uh, but, but, the, the, but Gen X was known as the slacker generation. Of course, now they're all in corporate, aren't they? They're all, they're all running the show. <laughs> Too bad for you. But the whole thing was everybody refused to try. And why was that? Was it, this is the thought. I, I think this was the perception. Is it because they were lazy? That's what everybody thought. But I think it had a lot to do with being too proud to be put into a vulnerable position. That's what it was about. Why try? I don't want to put myself out there. Why bother? It's just going to expose me. So I'm not even going to try. Even in Jesus' day, he had to ask blind Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man had to call out and venture out and put himself out there and ask, I want to see. I, I want something. Bartimaeus was not too proud to try. He sought Jesus, and Jesus said, your faith has made you well. He wasn't too proud to try. When I see men who are apathetic about spiritual things, they don't strike me as passive or humble. They strike me as men who are too proud to try. And sadly, that's, that's what I see everywhere. I see it in churches, and I certainly see it out in the world. I see all the, all the big macho guys that are putting big rims on their 4x4 and jacking it up and buying another boat and whatever they're doing. And yet, they're too proud to try to lift a finger to try to help their families or do anything about their own soul. They're too proud. And so they're totally apathetic when it comes to the things that really matter. But the next one is being too proud to wait. Now this should get all of us because we're in a busy generation. 
We're in a busy generation. It's marked by impatience. Um, but just ask yourself, your impatience, would you, would you automatically connect your impatience with pride? You say, no, I'm, I'm just, I just got stuff to do. Yeah. Well, it doesn't, doesn't matter whether it's you at the drive-thru or me at the drive-thru. Or, you know, me waiting for you to reply to my text. I sent you a text. How come, how come I'm waiting? Or it's you waiting for me to get that email back to you. It's like, I sent, I sent him an email. Where is it? Saul, not Paul Saul, but Saul the king in 1 Samuel 13. 1 Samuel 13, the story you may know, Saul's there and he's going to go fight this battle. They're going to offer a sacrifice, but he's impatient with the coming of God's man, Samuel, the, the, the prophet judge. And so Saul then, he decides, oh, the guy's not coming. He should be here, he's not here. So Saul takes it upon himself to do the priestly duties before the battle. He couldn't wait. So he disobeyed God to get what he wanted. And Saul offered the sacrifice. And God pronounced judgment on Saul as a result. How different is the one then to whom God looks? Isaiah 66, 2. To this man I will look, even to him who is poor and of a contrite spirit. That man is going to be patient and wait, and wait on God, and wait for God's timing, and wait to do things God's way. Of course, in the New Testament, one of the most striking examples of this kind of impatience is at Corinth. You're, if you're from another church, or you're here at this church, at the Lord's Supper, you read from 1 Corinthians 11, celebrating the Lord's Supper. But very often, we don't read the rest of the chapter where there's this condemnation of these folks in that church, the rich folks, who were so impatient that they wanted to be first at the Lord's Supper table. And they would go there, and they would clean it all up, and there'd be nothing left for anybody else, just because they felt that they were too proud to wait. They didn't need to wait. They're going to pig out at the Lord's Supper. They're going to butt in line because, hey, I'm here. I'm here. And if I'm here, then I have every right and entitlement to this. They're too proud to wait. But last of this, this little list, the probably most significant one, is too proud to worship. Too proud to worship. The most obvious example is the great sinful pride of Satan himself. Matthew 4, 10, when Satan tempted Jesus to worship him, what did Jesus reply in the wilderness? Matthew 4, 10, Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. See, Satan is too proud to worship God. I think in the handout, maybe there's a quote at the top from John Milton, the poet, Paradise Lost. 
Better to rule in hell than serve in heaven. And that's how a lot of people, that's how they operate. Satan is too proud to worship God, and many men are too proud to worship. They want to be worshipped. They want to be worshipped by their peers. They want to be worshipped by their industry. They want to be worshipped by their kids. They want to be worshipped by their wife. But they don't want to worship God. They're simply too proud for that. Pilate, Pontius Pilate that is, not Air Canada Pilate, WestJet Pilate, but Pontius Pilate, when he was judging Jesus, he said in John 19.10, he said, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? But Pilate was too proud to worship him. Too proud to worship him. And Jesus answered, you'd have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Dude, you do not have a clue about how this all works. He should have been bowing his knee before Christ and worshiping him. And instead he's saying, hey man, don't you, don't you know who I am? I'm Pontius Pilate. I'm a big deal. So blasphemous. Again, Thomas Watson, so good. He says this, Pride is a complicated evil, as Aristotle said. Justice encompasses all virtue in itself, so pride encompasses all vice. Pride is spiritual drunkenness. It flies up like wine into the brain and intoxicates it. Pride is idolatry. A proud man is a self-worshipper. Now, you know who, who is the, the prime and primary and primal example of all of this? Adam. Adam. I haven't used him as an illustration because Adam embodies all of these. Go through the list and think of Adam. Adam exhibited them all. Adam didn't submit. He didn't receive. He didn't learn. He didn't try. He didn't trust. He didn't wait. He didn't worship. Adam's pride was the sin behind the sin. But Jesus is so different. The last Adam was not proud. According to the incarnation, the son submitted to the father. He he received baptism to fulfill all righteousness. He learned obedience through the things that he suffered. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He never stopped trying. He set his face like flint and proclaimed the gospel for which purpose he was sent. He waited on God to raise him from the dead on the third day. And he waits for the timing of his father to return in judgment all to the glory and praise of God. So that's the contrast. And of course, looking at that list, that's the danger of being too proud. Now, I just want to kind of be real then and think about this second section, namely this question, can't pride be a good thing? Because that's maybe been sticking in your head. You know, you go and you look on a real estate listing and what do they say? Well, it's got pride of ownership. You know, what does that mean? 
That means the people are really quirky and they painted it in weird colors. Because <laughs> they like it and nobody else does. Oh, it shows pride of ownership. And we can say any of this stuff, you know, pride of workmanship. You know, the guy who built this pulpit shows pride of workmanship. Or, or what I'm used to hearing about is cowboy pride. You know, what's cowboy pride? Well, it's that, this idea that you're actually a good steward. That's what that's talking about. It's not a negative thing. It's that you're a good steward. So cowboy pride means you're a good steward with your animals, with your horses, your cattle. You're a good steward with your gear, with your tag. You know, you've got, you know, the stuff that you use, well, it's a certain kind of stuff. You're also a good steward with your mouth. You keep your mouth shut and do your work, not be flapping your gums. And so it's taking responsibility for that stewardship yourself, not waiting for someone else to do it. That's kind of the cowboy pride of the cowboy code. So there is a good sort of pride. But that isn't what the Bible is talking about most of the time. Sometimes we can take pride in others, or they can take pride in us. And Paul talks in this way in 2 Corinthians 5 and 2 Corinthians 7 about the Corinthians. That he could have pride in them and they could have pride in him. I, I can say to my wife that I'm proud of her. Or to my boys. In other words, I'm seeing they are good stewards of what God has given to them, and it reflects well on my stewardship too. And we can see a good stewardship as then this proper pride. It, it, it's that you are worshiping God with the work of your hands. You've been given gifts to enjoy. You have steward them. You do your duty. You're faithful then to what has been entrusted to you. So don't go jumping on some guy just because they talk about, you know, Oh, they, I can see you've got a lot of pride in your work. You know, oh, well, no, I don't, have, no, I don't want to be proud. You don't have to jump on guys about that. The point is you're just being a faithful steward to what's been entrusted to you, your work, your family, your marriage, your body, your mind, your soul. To be honest, some of you could take a little bit more pride in yourself, in your stuff, in that way, in this good way. But more specifically, because this is a talk about the other dominant type of pride that's talked about in the Bible, and that is our problem. What to do? What do I do? I'm a proud man. What do I do? Well, the first is, and you see it there, you need to own it. You need to own it. And, and, and by that, I mean, you need to own the fact that you are proud in many ways that you don't think you are. That's my hope, is that a few of the things I've been able to share here have unlocked for you ways that things that you do and ways that you act that actually reveal that you actually have pride behind it. And you didn't think you were proud, but you are. We don't know how, prou how proud we really are. And so you need to own it. You need to own it and confess it. And, and how to do that? Have it be illumined to you? I just encourage you, read through the Proverbs on pride. Certainly look at all these examples, but go through the Proverbs on pride. Proverbs 11.2. When pride comes, disgrace follows, but with humility comes wisdom. Or Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Look out. Proverbs 29, 23. A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. Or Psalm 73, verse 6. 
Therefore, pride is their necklace. A garment of violence covers them. Well, you're not supposed to wear that garment. You're actually to clothe yourselves, as Peter says, with humility. So own it. That's the first thing, first practical thing. Secondly, be humbled. Start to view negative circumstances as occasions to receive the teaching of God to lower you in ways that you didn't know that you actually needed lowering. Oh, well, you know, life's been so hard. What was me? Self-pity. And then something happens, and you're so unteachable, you don't realize, actually, God is trying to humble you even further, and you're unwilling to be taught by it. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Sometimes you wonder, why is all this happening to me? And you start, oh, God's out to get me, and this kind of stuff. Well, maybe it's that I just simply refuse to learn his lesson, and I refuse to repent of my pride. I just don't want to do it. And he's going to keep at me until I see it in front of my face, and I repent of my sin. So it's not just be humble, but be humbled. Let God's humbling of you in circumstance, go ahead and receive that and be taught by it and submit to it. Thirdly, look up. Look up to see the highness of God, the gravity of God, the scope of God, and even the condescension of God that God would even care to give you his grace and mercy. And when you look up, you'll see that God is high. And when you see God is high, then you will be lowered. Then you're in a position, if you've never done so before, you're in a position then to submit, to receive, to learn, to try, to trust, to wait, to worship. And all of this describes believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, it's all kind of features of that. Believing in Christ's punishment-taking in your place. Believing in Christ's merit-making in your place. Believing in Christ's offer of deliverance free of charge. Christ's call to trust and obey with no other conditions attached. It's an amazing thing, the gospel offer. When God is high, you'll be low. And you'll see the goodness of the gospel clearly. So that's why you've got to look up. The last, simply follow Jesus. And that might seem like a simple, like obvious answer, but I'm, I'm meaning really follow him. Because his incarnation, we were celebrating at Christmas coming up, his incarnation was a humiliation. And his resurrection was his vindication. Again, Thomas Watson, referencing Philippians chapter 2, he said, Let us set before us the golden pattern of Christ. His degree is doctorate in humility. Philippians 2, 7, But made himself of no reputation and was made in the likeness of men. And Watson says, oh, what abasement, what abasement 
it was for the Son of God to take our flesh. No, that Christ should take our nature when it was in disgrace, being stained with sin. This was the wonder of humility. Look at a humble Savior and let the plumes of pride fall off. I'll tell you what, if you won't let them fall off, God will pluck them off you. Don't be too proud for Christ. As Peter says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would humble us all. You grant us repentance for our great pride, our stubborn arrogance, and that you'd make us more like Christ, conformed even to his image, embracing him in his humiliation, taking up his cross, but also rejoicing in the hope of his vindication, even knowing that the promise of resurrection is ours, even as we trust in him. Help us to have that kind of confidence and that kind of humility, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll just pray, uh, commit our time to the Lord, and then we'll begin. So Father in heaven, gracious God, uh, we do praise you uh, for your word, uh, which is our guide and our light and even drives us to Christ himself. Thank you for the teaching we've received this morning. Uh, may we even uh, receive it with meekness, uh, this imp word implanted in our hearts, and, and help us now uh, as we discuss these things, uh, that it is an edifying time for all. Uh, that we will be humble men of God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so there's lots of good questions here, um, but I've got a question for Pastor Clint uh, to, to lead us off, is what is a gigachad? Because <laughs> I'm with a couple of older guys there, we haven't got a clue what that is. Well, really, Gavin, I, I would say that, that you're the, around here, you're the gigachad of British football. Um, so, what, so not a what, good thing. Then. Yeah, 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 no, yeah, it's, yeah, it's a good thing. So I mean, it's a it's a meme. Uh, you know, I'm I'm turning 50 this month, and uh, but I try to kind of keep tabs on what young guys are looking at. In it, the kind of the manosphere, the idea of the Chad is then the the jock. You know, the muscle bound, you know, big guy. And uh, there's you've seen pictures of him maybe, and and then and then the Giga Chad is even more so. And you know, he's gonna have not just a square jaw, but a massive square jaw sticking out like that. And so it's just a, kind of your, your Superman kind of figure. So, yeah. Very That's good. That, chat. that explains it. Your kids were cracking up over yeah, yeah. We didn't have a clue. Yeah. Okay, so now to the, to the main questions. Um, here's, a, here's a question to, to start with on pride. How do you call out pride in others whilst addressing your own pride? Yeah, I, I think I think it, it's very much like like Jesus' own teaching from the Sermon on the Mount, isn't it? How are you gonna How are you going to to pick out the speck in someone else's eye? Well, you got to take first what the log out of your own, right? So so when but when you are doing that, when you know that you are seeking to have your pride exposed, you then are correcting someone not as the other. But as someone who, yeah, I, I'm a proud man, or I, according to my flesh, 
I can be full of pride, you know, these things, but, but I'm, I'm concerned about you. I'm, I care enough about someone to say, yeah, I, I don't think this is good. You know, I think, I think you're relying on this too much. You're, you're, you have a wrong understanding of yourself. You have a wrong understanding of circumstances, but it just incumbent on you that how can you then speak out? How can you be that man to help anybody else? If you refuse to deal with your own stuff, if you refuse to take the log out of your own eye, you know, and so that's kind of what's incumbent on here. It's not that then there's necessarily a perfect way to call out pride in someone else. It's that you have to be prepared first off to be a man who's keeping short accounts with God and you're actually dealing with these things yourself. And then you're, you're useful in true sincerity trying to help other people. Otherwise, everybody can spot it when you're a hypocrite. You're saying, oh, well, you're so, you're so full of yourself. And everybody's saying, yeah, you're the most proud guy I know. You know? And, and so that hypocrisy undercuts your whole witness. So. Yeah, that's helpful. And um, what about um, then, say, you're a dad, um, and uh, you've got, you, you know, your wife's called you, the kids have, uh, have, have been naughty, and you're set to discipline them when you come home. Uh, but you've just exploded at someone at work in prideful way and had a big bust up and you're coming through that door. Should you not discipline your kids or how, what's the process for guys that have you know, manifested pride just in the instant before they're called to do the duty as a father? Yeah, I, I, I think then that's, the, that's the, the wonder of our access at the foot of the cross because you can come and... you. You've sinned, and you know it, and you're called to actually provide an example in a very way that you've all, you've immediately failed. Well, you can come to the foot of the cross, and you come yourself, and you can bring your whole family with you and say, "I've just sinned in this way." I'm hearing mom says you've just sinned in this way. Thankfully, there's a gracious Savior, and we can come to the foot of the cross and ask His forgiveness for our sins. To confess our sins to him and we can know that if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and for when dad when dad says that that he needs that cleansing that's going to be the powerful thing that then is going to help those kids to see oh it's not just my parents telling me this stuff it's that they're sinners too and they need to go to the same savior and if you teach your kids that that's going to be the most valuable thing you can teach them so immediate access it's not some, it's not some Roman Catholic ritualized thing. Oh, I've got to go through this purifying ritual first, and then, then I'm qualified to say something to someone else, my kids or whatever. No, immediate access to the cross. That's the Protestant Reformation distinctive. Don't have to go confess. Oh, where's the priest? I've got to go confess my sin, and then I can do my duty as a dad. No, no, you've got a high priest in heaven. Go straight to him. Yeah, very helpful. I, I've often used the um, example myself. I used we do parenthood as one of our electives, uh, Sunday school, and with teenage uh, children. So you know, you get to that point where they're bigger and they, they're pretty, pretty sharp in their minds. They can argue back with you, and you get that argument uh, with your teenage daughter, and she's been a bit lippy towards you. Storms off into her room, slams that door. Now, uh, as the father of the house, then, what do you do? Well, there's nothing that then melts a teenager's heart. That you don't let the sun go down on that anger. You knock on that door. You come in and sit down on the bed next to her. And, and you say, hey, you know, 
you were rude to, to, to dad there and, and that was wrong and that was sin. But maybe I was a little bit harsh myself and, and, and dad needs the, the gospel as you do and, and you turn both your daughter and yourself towards the cross. And so as Pastor Clint was saying, it, it becomes a redemptive moment. And that's just, you know, when they're smaller kids, there's, you know, the, maybe a spanking. Well, they're older and teenagers. How do you exercise that fatherly care and, uh, and discipline even in that sense? is by that humble approach so it's good to remember um question was judas predestined in his pride question is was judas a sinner yes no yes judas under the judgment of god yes no yes all all is under god's sovereignty and so even in our understanding, I mean, this gets into the details of predestination. But I will say, Judas was completely to blame for his, his destiny going to hell. It's his fault. And nevertheless, God in his sovereignty, yeah, his pride, his pride is an expression of his sin, of his fallenness. But he is, like all mankind, under the judgment of God. And God has so ordained all things that even according to his foreordination, all these things will bring glory to God. Now, I'm not going to get into prelapsarian, infralapsarian things, questions that, in this group, but um, but the point is, though, yeah, it was all according to God's God's sovereign plan, what God orchestrated. So, yes, it's not then, oh, it's somehow, you know, it it uh, it mans manifests itself because of his environment. No, no, he's he's rotten to the core, and he's destined he's destined to go to hell. And I think uh, Acts one speaks to uh, says that the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand be. by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, mm -hmm. for he was numbered among us and uh, was allotted his share in his ministry. Yeah. So there's a prediction within the scripture there. Yeah, it's good. <sighs> Is there ever a place for self-vindication where it does not fall under pride? Yeah, I mean, when we're getting into these definitions, you know, that's always the challenge, but the idea of a self-vindication would be a sense of a defense, an apologia. You know, well, yeah, then there, is, there are, there are going to be places where you need to defend yourself. We believe in self-defense. We believe that you can go to court and defend yourself. Um, that even that you need to speak speak the truth in any in any in, in these different situations, and it might be the truth about yourself. But I think I think then when you think about these, you know, self vindication is a tricky one because then just that language is more oriented to this idea of improperly self vindicating myself over against God's vindication. But in terms of self-defense, self everybody turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 4. 1 Corinthians 4 is going to be a really key. It'll, it'll mesh even with some of these other questions that are coming in. And this is a really good one to help think through these issues. 1 Corinthians 4. So this is Paul talking about, you could almost say it's an apologia, an apology or a or his self-indication, or talking about his own ministry. He says, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So he's telling others how they're supposed to view him. Is he, is he being self-indicated? 
Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Wow, he sounds like he's self-vindicating there. In fact, I do not even judge myself. Oh, okay. For I am not aware of anything against myself. But then the caveat, but I am not thereby acquitted. I don't know anything against myself. Like you might think, yeah, I don't really know anything against myself. But he says, but I'm not thereby acquitted. So he's, he's honest about that. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So anytime you're in a position where you have to defend yourself, to recognize you may or may not be right in your self-defense, but also to know it is God who judges you. So if you speak falsely and you're just out in a kind of sinful way to self-indicate yourself, God sees it and you're not going to get away with it. But on the other hand, under God, when you try to have a clear conscience and be sincere and you're stating things objectively, and that's, that'd be kind of a key word that I would say that summarizes what Paul's getting at, is looking at yourself and the situations objectively. And we're, it's all flawed, but we try to speak objectively about these things. But ultimately, what's God's view? And that's what we kind of consign ourselves to. And there will be occasions where you do that. Paul can even go so far later in, in 1 Corinthians 4. Um, I mean, he's talking about being puffed up with pride in verse 6, the danger for these guys. He's talk, he kind of goes into a litany of all these awful things that have happened to him. It's like, hey, Paul, why are you, why are you telling all, these, all, all your woes? Do we want to hear about all your woes? He goes through them all. He says in verse 13, we have become and are still like the scum of the world and the refuse of all things. Aren't you being over the top, Paul? But then he, he says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. He's not guilt tripping them. He's just trying to be objective. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. And then he finishes out the chapter by arguing that he actually is an example to be followed. And I think that in that sense, because men are not dealing with their pride, they in turn are not putting themselves out to be examples, to be imitated by others. So they actually, they're, they're kind of messed up on both sides. They still hold on to their pride but they don't actually have a proper confidence in the Lord in terms of their stewardship as, so that then they can be put out there as examples for their wives, for their families, in their churches, and, and this sort of thing. And they just kind of, they all pull back. And we, we've got to get over that. So, Why does Paul boast in, in his sufferings, about his sufferings? So I'm thinking of, you know, Second Corinthians 11 and the list of, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah I, he boasts in his sufferings because they become evidence of God's provision for him. They, they're kind of platforms upon which, look at my sufferings, and yet here I am. God still brought me through them. And also the fact that then it provides then a model that follows after the pattern of our own Lord Jesus. And he's showing, yeah, here, 
I'm undergoing these sufferings, but it's worth it. Because our Savior suffered and He was resurrected. And that is the final vindication. And I have the same hope. And you can have the same hope if you believe in this Christ. And it doesn't matter what sufferings happen. You too have this hope of resurrection. So both, both a platform to see God's provision, but also this display even of the, of the sufferings of the cross in a, in, a, in a disciple. And then following on from that then, how would God's providential sufferings in our lives, uh, as Paul speaks of the thorn in his side that he'd asked to be removed three times, this was for, yes. to keep me from being conceited. So you spoke of the Puritans. The Puritans very much have a good theology of suffering and how to improve your trials, they speak of. How do we as men then improve our trials and embrace the, the providential sufferings of God? How does that work to humble us? Yeah, so kind of as I implied in the talk, being not just humble, but letting yourself be humbled when these things happen, just like Paul with, all of, with his thorn in the flesh to keep him from being too proud based on the, the spiritual epiphanies that he enjoyed. Well, well, when we have these circumstances that come, they would call them circumstances, but it's God's providence. When we have that happen, we then have then an occasion to learn. It, be, it becomes, I mean, your term was a redemptive moment. It's a, it's a sanctification moment. It's a lesson. And you, you should be asking, what is the lesson in this? What is God trying to teach me? And that might be difficult to necessarily understand, but you can know God is teaching you. He is actually, he is shaping you. He is conforming you to the image of Christ. But you've got to let it happen. Instead, what's our instinct? Oh, bad things are happening. Let me, do, let, me try to, let me try to fix this and salve this and ignore this and medicate this away as quickly as I can and not think about it. Instead of, well, what is God trying to do? And maybe there's actually deep things he's trying to teach me. And upon teaching them to me, then maybe there'll be quick relief. You never know. Um, but then to learn learn in that way, and, and that's good. If if you you say you're a single guy here, an unmarried guy, and and you you very much desire to be married, and you're praying for this, and and yet it's not coming, and 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 it's a it's a trial of sorts, and you see you know you're getting older, you're getting past thirty, and 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 this this girl doesn't seem to be on the horizon, or you've not had much joy when you've approached a girl. Um, uh, ha how, do, how does that guy then appropriate this trial that the Lord's uh, providentially given him? Is he to, to view it as maybe I'm called to singleness or should I stop praying for marriage? How, how should, where's the humbling effect there? I'll, I'll answer autobiographically, actually. I didn't get married till I was 29. I, I didn't think I was going to get married at, a, at, that, at a certain point. And the same thing prayed where you know you'd see this prospective girl eh, it's not the right fit what's you know and and what i what i was started to conclude just just before i met my wife um was that i i started to see that there were deep things that the lord needed to purge in me to prepare me to be a husband and had i not had them purged I would have been a disaster. And, then, and I'm talking about as a Christian. But I, was, but I had so much baggage when I first got saved. There were so many 
so many besetting sins that needed to be purged out of my life that had I got married before that, it would have been a bad thing. So, that, so in God's goodness and kindness, he was actually making these different possibilities of relationship fail and, and having me go through these trials to humble me and to purge me and then to com- have me conform to the image of Christ more. So that then about the time when I was prepared to, okay, open hand before the Lord, I don't think I'm going to get married. Maybe I'm going to die by 29 like McShane is what I... My, 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 that, well, that's what my wife, she always says, you know, when she met me, I talk about dying all the time. And she, she's like, who is this? And, I, and, and then at that point, oh, oh, okay. Oh, here's, oh, wow, here's, here, this, this I, could, I could get married. It's amazing. So, that, so I just think, that, you know, learn from the Lord. Things aren't opening up. Oh, well then just press into the Lord. He might be teaching you deep things and then you're prepared then when the blessed opportunity happens. Very helpful, I think that. Very helpful. Uh, Not getting disheartened, but pressing into the Lord and asking the Lord to show you. And it might, and and the Holy Spirit to point out uh, things in your heart and and take a little bit of time. Uh, But you're, you're embracing the Lord's sovereign hand in his wisdom in this particular trial uh, and you're trusting in him for, for the future and you know you can because if he gave his own son for you how would he not graciously with him also give you all things that you need um, on your uh, point about learning I think maybe uh, if I'm to be unbiased in seeking truth how far into learning about other beliefs should I go You don't need to be. You don't need to be learning about other beliefs. You don't. You, you life's short. You, you've got a Bible here. You you learn about this belief. You, you worry about that. You got a lifetime to master that. That that's that's actually the that that it, I've I've met lots of guys. You know that I, I remember a cowboy said. I, I said, oh yeah, well I'm back then I was going to seminary and what do you do there? I, I studied the Bible. He said, do you study other Bibles too? And I'm like, no, no, I don't. Yeah, I can, I can maybe pick up a Quran or look at a Book of Mormon. You don't need to be looking at the other stuff. You need to know this book. You need to, and, and, and once you do, once you know the real bills, like they count, you know, at the bank teller counts, you, you don't even have a look and you'll spot a counterfeit. But the learning, the learning is not about filling your head. It is actually this learning in the school of Christ. It's actually more this experiential discipleship learning. Learning from Christ. Appropriating what God's word says, but also then how that applies to me right now. And I can venture to say, even in this room, all you guys come from good churches, you go and you hear some you know, pretty awesome sermon on a Sunday, and by probably about 5.30 that day, it's gone. It's gone. You're on to other things. But it's because we're not very skilled at learning, or to use the term that Gavin brought up, which was the Puritan language, you haven't improved it. You haven't improved it. You haven't then thought it through. You haven't rethought the outline, thought how it applies to your soul, how it applies to your specific circumstances, and then regurgitated it to give it to your wife and to your kids and apply it then to their lives and so that your whole 
family circle is then reoriented to the word that you heard together. And so you're not learning in that way. Instead, it's like, yeah, that was good, but I'm not really interested in the Gospel of Matthew right now. I'm interested in Romans right now. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't really care about that sermon, but I'm going to actually go and listen to uh, MacArthur on Romans, or I'm going to listen to John Piper on Romans now, because that, that's what I'm into now. And you become a self-feeder rather than recognizing, oh, actually God had, appro- had appointed for that word for you to hear it right then, and you haven't learned it. You haven't worked to learn it. On, on learning, uh, can a, a man learn from his wife? I mean, aren't husbands supposed to wash their wives with the word? Are husbands supposed to take the lead of, in devotions in the home? So that's the first part of this question. And the second is, can a man learn from unbelievers? So firstly, from his, his wife, secondly, from unbelievers. Yeah, absolutely on both. Yes, on both. You got to remember, even though there is this role and duty that husbands have towards their wives, to wash their w- wives uh, with water, with the word, a wife, you know, she, she's, she's bought with the blood of Christ. She's created in the image of God. She's redeemed. She's a saint. So, you know, we believe in a complementarianism, even, even if we want to say even a, a, a biblically defined patriarchy. We believe that. However, that we still affirm that before God, men and women are of equal standing because they're both bought with the blood of Christ. They're both, they're both his own. And so, so if she has the word of God, she has the Holy Spirit. It's not that guys only have the Holy Spirit. The women have the Holy Spirit. She's got the word. She can read the word. You absolutely can learn from her. Just like you can learn from men other than pastors. You can learn from all kinds of people. So, so you can do that. And, and as far as the unbelievers... Oh, and I would just say about your wife, if you're not learning from your wife, you're an idiot. <laughs> Scripture speaks of the wife as the, as the bride of Christ. Well, well you know, you, you want to be learning from your wife. So, and, and secondly, as far as unbelievers, created in the image of God. So there's going to be clever uh, unbelievers who see God's order. And they're going to see any number of things in that order that then that, that can be beneficial for us to take on board. At the same time, if they are not going to heaven, if they are not bought with the blood of Christ, you will also see the fatal flaw in it all. And that's why you don't want to give yourself to them. And that's also why you want to be careful in your alliances with them. You want to be very careful. It's, it's not just about all these non-Christians kind of papering over some type of Christian-like morality, but they're all going to hell. We can learn from them. There's lots of things you benefit from, but we, we've got to be clear on these distinctions. Yes, yeah, there's a common grace uh, wisdom as well that, that we can learn from with, with unbelievers. Um, you can learn from an ant, you sluthered. Yeah. That's the next talk, by the way. Sloth. I'll be doing that. Uh, Spurgeon. Nice, nice little advertising. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> it's, uh, what, DJ, that's the 19th, right? 19th? Yeah. 19th of November. Mark it down. Awesome. And from the lack of people that mark that down, you all need to be here because you're slothful. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and maybe just a quick line on how guys can kind of facilitate that. Uh, 
if, they, if they're leading their wives in Bible studies and how then they can um, encourage their wives' feedback that they might learn from them, that it might take their counsel as she is a helper fit for you. Is there ways that guys can cultivate that in their marriage where they draw from their wife so their wife doesn't has, has a sense that she can say stuff to her husband and be of help to him in that way? Simple things. Uh, asking your wife what, if you're leading in the Bible studies, you know, just soliciting her opinion on what she understands, what the text is saying, or her thoughts on application, or in her own devotions, just asking her, you know, so what the, what's the Lord teaching you these days? Uh, asking your wife to pray, you know, how, why, why don't the women pray publicly at the prayer meeting? Well, maybe because the guys aren't asking their wives to pray at home, you know, and so they're scared to pray anywhere. You know, but then you're wanting to actually build her up in her spirituality, and so and soliciting that, and then, you know, um, I ask my wife to pray for me all the time. You know, and so then that's her spiritual insight before God, where then she is interceding with God on my behalf. Well, that's a great way to then to then have her included and have her then, uh, you know, you, you can learn from her. Very good. Why is it harder for a man who gets older to break off from his pride? Good question. Yeah. So a few things. When, when, as men get older, you, you, you figure stuff out, right? You figure out there's a, there's a, there's kind of a wise way and there's a stupid way. And so you try to do, you try to do things in the wise way as you understand. And there's a, there's a method, there's how you work, there's how you do things. And that's what happens then, as guys get older, they're, they, they're, they're fussy about their own way of doing things. And, and some of it is just the natural product of, of experience. So it can be really good. But the flip side is that you can get stuck in your ways. And you, you then are resistant to learn and resistant to change. And if you get get your identity attached to how you do things and well this is how i've done it you know all these years on this farm or in this business or you know with this team or whatever well then 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 guys feel feel sensitive about it and they don't want to change because they feel that it injures them personally but further when you get older you get tired like everything you know takes more energy and so then you you actually don't want to try because it takes effort it takes effort to change. And, and so that's why then guys can get very stubborn in their pride and very fixed in their pride. And their kids or their peers or their wife will shake their head and wonder, why is this guy so stubborn? Why is he so like this? And, it, and some of it isn't, you know, they'll say, oh, it, oh, it's personality. But then it'll be that way with the guy who isn't, you know, naturally, it doesn't seem, I shouldn't say naturally, but isn't obviously a jerk. But then they just won't move. They won't change. And, and I think those would be some of the features for an older man. Yeah. And I just encourage some of the younger guys in here, um, have a chat with a couple of our older men, the, the likes of Henry Hansmer and Oli, that have been around a long time and how that they're still uh, at their stage of life, still putting sin to death in their life and pride. Uh, speak to those guys and, and glean wisdom from them and how they're, they're doing it. Um, a question maybe even that could be linked to that, uh, and maybe even linked to your, the first Peter 5 text about the maybe younger and elders, and you know you could see that as younger to men to the elders in the church, or to the, those who are older. 
and this idea of really cultivating in the church um, a mentorship where a younger man may go to an older man, and we've talked about this a little bit before, um, how does pride or humility uh, work into that? What, do you, well, maybe the question is, do you think pride is the issue as to why we don't see that enough in our churches, that culture of mentorship? But yeah, I, I, yeah, totally. I think lack of culture of mentorship is pride on two sides. It's young men who they think I've got more books on my shelf than any of the old guys in my church. So I, these guys got nothing to talk to me about. I'm up on the latest controversies. They've got nothing to say to me. But they're, full of, they're so full of themselves. So then they don't seek out the deep, deep experiential wisdom of men who have walked with the Lord. And yeah, they don't know the latest Twitter war. But, you know, that's actually a good thing. Because they have this kind of long view of stuff. They don't know what a Giga Chat is. They don't know what a Giga Chat is. <laughs> but, but then that wasn't for you. That was, that, was, that was for a different demographic. But anyways, let's see, now you learned something. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the older guys can be the same. Because they see the young punks and they think, oh, well, these guys, yeah, they're... Why, why, should, I, why should I give myself to them? They, you know, because they're they're not just going to swallow everything I say. You know, they're, they're, you know, they push back when I say anything. So then why bother? And, and then you don't have a culture of mentorship. But, but what everybody has to do is recognize that, that there's wisdom from both. The young guys, when, they, when, they, when they're being mentored by an older guy, for the older guy, it actually lights a fire under you a little bit, and it keeps you going. You know, there's, some, there's, got, there's older men that don't mentor guys and they need it because they need a, a fire lit under them. They need to hear about the giga chat. They need, they need to hear about the, you know, the, a few of the controversies and stuff. But the young guys, I lament it right now in Canada that there's all these young guys online and they're doing all this kind of big splash. I've seen them speak of older men. I, I don't care. Older men even than a guy might disagree with. And I can think of like one professor, for example, that I disagree with him on lots of stuff. But he's going to heaven. And I've, I've seen people talk about this guy, young guys, in such godless ways. And I just think, well, the pride there. This, their supposed movement is going to crash and burn because these guys are so full of themselves. And yet, they get lots of clicks and lots of views. You know, so so that, that's a great danger. And we need to humble ourselves and seek out the good godly men. Carl Truman's pointed out as well that in our culture today, that there's a very much an anti-historical bent. You know, we're all about history is something to, you've got to get over, a hurdle you've got to get over. It's, it's bad, it's oppressive. And, and I think that can play into as well. Well, oh, what's the older got to teach the younger? Yeah, but they're just ancient history. They're like dinosaurs. In fact, seeing that, that tradition and, and what they've lived through as, as some good things to be learned from, even if we're not, it's like we talk about the Puritans, but we're not, we don't want to be Puritans, as it yeah. were, you know, in our day, we take the theology of the Puritans, but we live in our era, and so the young would then take that wisdom of the older, but you're still living in the era that you're, you're, you're called to live in now. I'll just say, me and my brother were just talking back about uh, at the Puritan Conference down at MacArthur's Church, MacArthur and Piper were having this interview, and I haven't seen it. But just the thought that these two older men, whom 
in their crowds, their two crowds can be fighting with each other in the Twitter wars. The young guys are fighting with each other. Two guys, older men, sitting down with appreciation for one another with a certain perspective. And I'll tell you what, that's what we all need to adopt, not this, oh, well, there's my tribe and there's your tribe, and let's see who's getting market share here. Let's, we got to get past that or we're all sunk, you know, because there's not enough of us. Yeah, very good. Uh, good we'll, we'll close in a, in a few minutes, but uh, good couple of questions more here. Uh, how do you know the timing between trying and waiting? To a couple of the things that you, you mentioned, trying and waiting, uh, i.e. asking a girl out on a date between trying and then waiting. <laughs> That's the time. Dating advice with Clinton Gavin. Um, cash, your cash your bread on the waters, take a risk. You, you gotta, you know, but, but again, the context is, am I humbling myself before God? Is what I'm pursuing a good thing before God? And, and it's not, God's not guaranteeing my results. But you step forward in faith and you try and you're you're actually you're actually trusting like i actually think there's a lot of guys that are not asking girls out or pursuing girls because they're too proud because they don't want to be exposed as having any kind of insufficiency or weakness and so they don't they don't speak up and if any of you guys know if there's single guys here if there's any single guys in your churches we got all kinds of single gals godly gals in our church so send them on over but um, but the guys don't ask these girls out because I think they're proud and they don't want to venture forth. At the same time, you venture forth. Does it work out? Maybe not. But you've got to wait on the Lord. You've got to you've got to trust that the Lord will orchestrate things. But you do have to try. You've got to you know that's what faith is, isn't it? It's stepping out and it's, it's me relying that this I got to sit on this chair. I can think this chair is great, but I actually have to sit on it. I got to try it out. And, uh, and so venturing forth, I think it's tough to say about a balance. Um, I think it just, you're, it's more important to discern, am I looking to the Lord to let me act in clear conscience? Then you'll know, should I be venturing or should I just kind of be patient? And, and in terms of taking godly risk, um, you know, it is about our view of the Father in, in heaven. Do you view him as a generous gracious, merciful father, or as a hard taskmaster, which was the problem with the guy in the talents and the parable of the talents, Matthew 25. And so then our pride has us look at God as, he's, he's harsh, he's holding out on me. And, and so then if I, if I make that move or I do that, whether it's towards a girl, I'm talking about godly uh, advances or that business or that decision, he's not gonna be there for me. He won't, there won't be mercy for me or grace for me because I don't view him. Uh, rightly, um, so that then play is is the way that it, you know a humble man views God rightly, and therefore he begins to expand and take dominion. Awesome, yeah. And, and Piper's great phrase is living by faith in future grace. That there's great that the Father has grace for you in the future. So go ahead and venture forth, because He's actually got grace in store for you that you haven't even seen yet, and you don't even know is there for you. You know, and that gives you great confidence. But we need more of that. We need godly confidence and to get rid of ungodly pride. We need both to actually, uh, you know, to be addressed in modern guys. Yeah. Uh, one that could be very helpful for guys, if there's some... Um,
prideful uh, sin, so sin in your past that either was rooted in pride, that you're not necessarily engaging in now, but maybe it's something you've not really confessed to anyone, and it, it keeps rearing its head in your conscience. So it could be something from your teen years, or even as a child, or whatever. Um, how do you deal with that? What is the humble way of dealing with that? I think that's where the body of Christ is there, to be able to confess your sins to one another, that this ownership is not just notional. And when I say own ownership, that's what confession is. It's actually owning it. It's saying that this is, this is the case. So I've sinned in this way. I've asked forgiveness from the Lord. Well, if you're still kind of struggling with it or it's pricking your conscience, then to confess that to another brother and just to be able to be open about it and for him then to remind you of the gospel and if you've confessed your sins you've repented of your sins then for him to actually preach the gospel to you and remind you well actually you know your mind might keep bringing that up but jesus died on the cross for that sin and and you act you actually are cleansed from all unrighteousness with respect to that and your your head might be bringing that up but don't listen to that listen to what jesus says about it it's been forgiven. Now live as if it's been forgiven. And, but sometimes you need just an outside voice to, to help you be assured of that. And that's why God graciously gave us the church. You know, as uh, you know, Deborah calls the church, a mutual assurance of salvation co-op. Think about it. We, we, need, we need encouragement, this mutual assurance of salvation. It's a, it's a co-op. We're helping each other with this. Last question. Uh, for you then is what? how do we differentiate between uh, confidence and pride and especially then when we might engage in the public square or with others uh, in a very anti-Christian world and we need to have this conviction of, 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 of truth and uh, we need to contend for the truth um, how do we have confidence without being prideful yeah I, I think you you've got to search your heart and so you have you have to you have to then have you know create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me, as David prayed. You know you you want to be cleansed. You want to have clear conscience. The things that are clear in Scripture, then you can hold on to them with a firm grip. You do have a certain triage, but then there's going to be things about which the Bible's not quite as clear. I'm going to be careful about how how uh, rambunctious I am on those, on those things. But if I know that bef with a clear conscience, I can then speak the truth on these very clear things. And even if I make a mistake, like even if I, I do go over the top a little bit or you know, I, I speak improperly, I can apologize to people. I can confess my sin before God that I didn't speak perfectly in the way that even I would like to. And I can confess that. Uh, and, and own that. And I think that's the great thing. That's why we can venture forth. We don't have to be perfect. We can ask God's forgiveness if we make a mistake in how we do things. Now, we don't want to go be a jerk and then say, oh, well, I'll say sorry later. You know, you don't want to be like that. That's a horrible presumption. But, but we can venture forth and speak the truth in love. And if, you know, I maybe said things I shouldn't have put it in a way I didn't, uh, should not have. We can ask, we can apologize and ask forgiveness of the other person, or and we can repent before God and have that confidence. Great, thank you. Thanks very much. Great talk.